0: without forcing how to do it, write and say, and do the stuff I want to write and say, just because I want to do it. Not because I'm trying to make something good. Not because I'm trying to make some money. Not because I'm trying to get a big audience. Just because I'm trying to express myself clearly with the things that interest me and that I think might have value or interest to other people. That's the only reason I want to do it. And of course, I would like to make some money and I would like to get an audience to make the money, but that's not really, those are sort of, Hopefully that comes with it. Hopefully that happens, but, but you can't, it can't be about that. It's gotta be about what do I have to say? What do I really have to say? And if it's really what I have to say that I truly need to get out, presumably there will be other people that that connects with because all of us have things that are on our minds that we want to say or that we're feeling or unable to articulate. And so if somebody can express themselves clearly and deeply, then that's going to connect with other people. And I don't have to worry about the rest of it. I don't have to worry about anything else. So I'm just, that's my sort of mission right now. And I was thinking about this because I've been running uh, a bunch lately and I just went today four miles, a little bit more than four miles. But again, I was pushing myself a little bit. I did two miles in like 17 minutes and I don't know, 52 seconds, which for me was fast. It's like eight, 50 mile, which isn't fast, but for, you know, to do it for two miles, it's faster than I usually do it. And I was out of breath. And then, uh, Monday I did some intervals where I was doing, you know, three out of four laps of the, of the quarter mile slow. And then one fast. And the last half mile I did two fast for every four. And again, I was out of breath and pushing myself to finish it like that. And I started to think like sort of the Isaac Newton law of motion, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, or I think the Actual language whenever one object exerts a force on another object, the second object exerts an equal and opposite force on the first. Whenever you're forcing something, whenever you're pushing yourself, whenever you're browbeating yourself, say, come on, you know, I know my lungs are hurting, my legs are hurting, but go faster, get under this minute mark, get this time. There's an equal and opposite reaction, which is resistance, which is like, I fucking hate this. I don't want to do this. I'm living in a fascist hell in my own mind. You know, I, there's this, unless you're doing it for the joy of running, if you're pushing yourself internally and saying, I'm going to make myself do this, even though my body is telling me this is painful, there's an equal and opposite reaction, which is different than when like kid plays or when I used to play basketball in the park. And I just wanted to play. I was never like, you better hurry up and do this. You better, you better hustle. You better play basketball. I was just like chasing the ball, trying to score points, chasing the man that I was guarding around. I mean, it was just doing it. Cause I, I wanted to, or you see a kid play, a kid is ex- exerting so much energy, but they're not doing it because they're like, you have to exert energy. They're just doing it because the joy of exerting energy, because you, your body wants to run, it wants to uh, press itself. So today I was running. I did, I said, I'm just going to set the clock for 45 minutes. I'm not going to try to do four miles or whatever. And however long I go, I go. And that way, it's interesting because when you make the time the goal instead of the distance, then you're incentivizing going slower. Because if you make the distance the goal, you're incentivized to hurry up and get it over with. But if you're stuck for 45 minutes, either way, and you're not looking at your watch, going slow is just as good as going fast. Going slow may be better than going fast. So I went slow, but then I found myself going faster for stretches because going slow uses different muscles where you're kind of like taking these baby steps. And going fast, you can kind of extend your legs a little bit and get into it. And sometimes you feel like going fast. And so then you're speeding up because you feel like it, not because you're pushing yourself to meet some arbitrary time. So I did, a, actually did more than four miles. I thought four miles, 11 minute mile, I can, I can do that. But I did a little bit more than four. So I must've been like 10 and a half, which is obviously still slow. But for me again, four and a quarter miles, four and a half miles at 10 and a half pace is, is picking it up for me. I usually go super slow. But it doesn't really matter what the result is. It's just the idea that I didn't really push myself. I didn't really force myself. I mean, I made the decision to get out of my house, it's a little chilly out, rain for a little bit, get on the the subway and get to the track and do the miles. But beyond that, I try to not push myself because I don't want the opposite reaction. I don't want to feel like this sucks. I got to get this over with. I want to feel like this is joy. This is me moving around. This is me at 51 feeling like I'm 30. You know, that's what I want to feel. I want to feel the enjoyment of running and working up a sweat and being outdoors and breathing in the air. That's what I'm trying to do. And it's hard because you, you know, you're you're trained, you see people passing you on the track, you get competitive, you, you know, your times are kind of shit. You want to improve your times. You want to measure, you want to get something for all your effort. You want to say, look, I've been going to the track three times a week. Am I getting faster? Can I do a faster mile than I could when I started? You want some sort of tangible result to pat yourself on the back with, say I'm improving. And so it's, it's hard to just set the time and just drift off and not count. I didn't want to count the laps. I didn't want to know how far I went, but I wasn't able not to notice how many I did. I wanted to just zone out a bunch of kids running on the track. These kids were like so slow, most of them and walking and lazy. I was like that when I was like 10 or 11, when they made us go to the reservoir in Central Park and run for PE, hated that shit. These kids were just like that. And I was thinking, oh, I'm a good example for them. I'm running, keep going, keep going. But that's ridiculous. They like who's this freak doing this of his own volition? Well, you know, who the hell would want to do this unless they had to, unless they were being forced to? Anyway, I mean, we talk about fascism, COVID fascism, and mandating injections and lockdowns and all this fascism. You see it in China now and the hypocrisy of them. Oh my God, look what's happening in China. When it was happening here, they didn't care, they were for it. But fascism's out there, but it's also fascism in here, in your mind. Too. You know, you're doing it to yourself. So the, the things you see in the world are obviously reflections of the things that are internal. And so I'm fascist. I got to get this done. I can't relax. Got to get work done. Now, Thanksgiving weekend, my brother was here and I had to entertain them and it was nice to see them. He gets here on a Wednesday and we walk around the whole city and do some stuff, which was nice. And he says, I want to go to Nazaré tomorrow. Is that possible to see the big waves? And I said, I guess it's possible. And we look it up. When are the big waves there? It's around November usually. And they said Thursday and Friday are the two biggest wave days of the year. So of course we had to go. It's an hour and a half each way. So I get the beef stew chopped up and going in the morning. Heather's making the turkey. And then I drive an hour and a half each way. We went there for an hour, just Damon, and me and uh, his oldest daughter, Charlie. And we go to the, go to the edge and the waves are like 25 feet, maybe, maybe some 30 footers. There was no 90 footers. It wasn't like biggest of all time. It was just big for the year. And it was pretty cool, I have to say. It was worth it. We drove back in this thunderstorm, driving the stick shift, which I'm not very good at, but on the highway, it doesn't make a difference. And then Friday, I drive them out to Kalarish, where we have this house that still don't even have the permits for, and then took them to this uh, amazing beach hike. I'll throw a photo of the hike. The hike's incredible. It's, it's from Azania Mar to Magoitu, and nobody knows what it is. And it's like the nicest hike in Portugal. It's one of the nicest hikes I've ever been on in the whole world. It's incredible. It's like on the cliffs overlooking the ocean just a couple of miles and it's easy hike. It's really nice. So did that. Saturday was more mellow, but I walked them around the whole city and they left Sunday morning. And so I should feel like, okay, I've done a lot of shit. You know, I was still doing my podcast. I last week. I was still, although I skipped my football podcast, still doing my running. I'm still doing everything. Still fasted on Mondays. Still did my 51 pushups every other day. I'm still doing all the shit that I'm doing. And yet I feel like you know, I'm lazy. I feel like I'm not cranking out enough work. I'm not putting out a new substack, a new essay. And it's fascism. It's just fascism. It's like, there's there's no value to it unless I want to do it. I mean, unless it's something I have to say. It's just, I feel like I need to do this. Otherwise, what am I doing with my life? When I'm 51, I'm healthy. Why am I not doing more? Why am I not creating more? And that's, you know, that's not right. That's not that's not the uh, that's not the way. That's not the way to where anywhere you want to go. You know, the anywhere you actually want to be, that's not the way, It's forcing yourself to put this stuff out to justify your existence or feel like you're doing something. So I'm just trying to figure out what it is I can do because I want to do something. I don't want to sit around the house. I wanna do stuff, but I wanna figure out what it is I can do that's effortless. The way I the running today was mostly effortless. It wasn't totally, but mostly where I wasn't forcing myself to go faster than I wanted. And yet I still did it, completed the 45 minutes. I actually did more than the four miles I had planned to do. So that's the idea. I like the uh, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. things from physics, I think also do translate into the non-material realm pretty well. Another one I like is uh, at the speed of light, everything breaks down. Like most of the laws of physics break down. Like for instance, time stops. You don't age really if you're going the speed of light. Now you can't go the speed of light because anything that gets accelerated toward the speed of light takes on infinite mass and then is therefore impossible to accelerate to the speed of light because it would take infinite energy to accelerate an infinite mass to the speed of light. And there's finite amount of energy. So nothing can go at the speed of light, but at the speed of light, the laws of physics break down Uh, at the uh, center of a black hole, laws of physics break down. I like the idea that at the speed of light, the causes and effects, the before and after, the time doesn't really exist. And you know, the the idea of enlightenment, of spiritual enlightenment in the Buddhist tradition is you're sort of absent of karma. You sort of, you're coming back, you're taking on a human birth while enlightened uh, out of choice, whereas everybody else gets born out of karma from a past life. You still need to resolve something. There's still something that is due. You have a, a life that is due Suffering that is due that you need to get through. And then everything in your life is karma. All the causes have effects. Every effect has a cause. But at the speed of light, that breaks down. Past and future, before and after break down. So at the level of spiritual enlightenment, which is the same word, light in there, cause and effect karma break down. So I think physics and the way the physical universe is structured is sort of a model or at least a, an analogy. For things in the non-physical world, and so I like this. And uh, now, of course, all the Newtonian laws of physics only apply at normal levels of energy. At the speed of light, those break down. But I guess that's what I was saying. But in at, you know the the idea that in normal conditions, you know, non-speed of light conditions, non-center of a black hole, not inside a black hole conditions, the Newtonian laws work pretty well. And when one object exerts a force on another, the second exerts an equal and opposite on the first. And that's kind of what's happening. When you force yourself, you're using force, will, discipline, to push yourself. And then an equal amount of resistance comes up and it's like, I fucking hate this. This hurts. I don't like it. I'm not enjoying this. And then the only thing to sustain it is just pure willpower and discipline, which I think I have a decent amount of, but it's finite. It runs out and it's miserable, right? I mean, that's not a way you need to be disciplined in in understanding, in sort of a quest for knowledge. You need to be disciplined in uh, making choices. But in terms of just brute forcing yourself to do something for a goal, I think there's an equal and opposite reaction and it's unsustainable. It's not the way to do it. The people that are the greatest at everything that they're the greatest at, um, it's because they love it. That's the only way you can do it. It's the only way you can have the sustained focus and attention toward it. I don't think it's possible to do it through discipline and force, and in fact, you're probably just undermining yourself. And I've used a lot of discipline and force to get through a lot of shit in my life. So um, I'm trying to unlearn that and apply it both to the running, which is a nice practice because it's very simple and to whatever it is I'm using, whatever vehicles I'm using to express myself. So anyway, that's just what I've been thinking about. All right. That's that. I also had a theory that I've been thinking about. So this French woman I know, I've, mentioned her before. She's sort of a nutritional coach and she reads up on all the latest science and she knows what she's talking about. And she and I argue sometimes, or we agree with a lot of stuff. And she has this way of explaining it. I'm probably going to botch it. So this is my version of her version, not her version. But she talks about how with blood sugar and sugar, you ingest sugar. And she's like, that's putting it in your fridge, like your blood sugar. But then you have sugar in the freezer when you have too much blood sugar and you don't burn it off. It gets stored in your freezer, which is the liver. And so you've got this blood sugar in the freezer. And if you don't burn through the blood sugar in the fridge, eat all the stuff in the fridge through exercise or fasting or whatever, then you're going to just only be putting the stuff. You're going to be putting more stuff in your fridge. Your fridge is going to get Overpacked, and you're never going to get the stuff out of the freezer, the old stuff in the freezer, which is the liver, sugar in the liver. And you're going to have problems with your health, insulin resistance, and maybe uh, problems with your liver. But if you fast or exercise sufficiently or lower your carbohydrate intake, what's going to happen is you're going to burn through all the sugar in your blood. And then when that's gone, your liver is going to pump sugar into the blood to compensate and you're going to empty out the liver. And she always emphasizes emptying the fridge and emptying the freezer not keep filling the fridge before you've emptied it then you can replenish when you're done and you know this this is pretty much established i think in in circles where people are just looking for the truth i think it's pretty well established this blood sugar issue where you really want to burn it out burn it out in your bloodstream and in your liver but i just started thinking what about fat like a lot of toxins are fat soluble they're stored in the fat and just as our ancestors obviously burned through all the sugars, there's not a lot of sugar inv- available in, the, uh, in our ancestral environment, right? There were some berries maybe, and maybe they found some fruit trees at some point. But our fruit has been bred to be a lot sweeter. They certainly, before 10,000 years ago, weren't making grains very much. So they're eating mostly meat and berries and plants, you know, leaves. And so the sugar intake was very low. So they were constantly, their livers were not storing a whole lot of sugar, I wouldn't think. And so cleaning out the liver of sugar was, was normal evolutionarily. But what about fat, right? I mean, I would imagine that when our ancestors killed and hunted an animal, they would feast and stuff themselves and get fat on it to the extent they could fat is storage for future energy, but in lean times, they would have almost no fat and they'd be you know, needing to get some, get some more food. And they probably cycle through their fat, just like, you know, we're being encouraged to cycle through our sugar not keep it locked away in the freezer, but we have this fat locked away in the freezer for 50 years. You know, the fat, you have baby fat when you're a kid. And if you, you know, don't get in serious, serious athletic shape, maybe you, you know, you never get rid of some of those toxins. I don't know if it cycles through anyway. I know your cells kind of reconstitute every seven years, but it's just an idea, just a theory that like, maybe you should get like super, super thin, burn off a lot and then gain it back cycle through it. And especially because, you know, the body fat that you got initially was seed oils and polyunsaturated fats and, and toxic fats. So what if, you know, you're carrying that around and, and it's, it's pretty well known that visceral fat uh, around your organs is much more likely to lead to any sort of cardiovascular disease than other kinds of fat. Brown fat apparently is good for cold resistance and it's good for your health. So there's different kinds of fat that are that you hold on to that are healthier and less healthy. And maybe, I don't know this, again, this is just a theory, like maybe if you burn through your fat, get down to like, you know, 10% body fat or less every so often, once every couple of years, and then you could put on some weight again, maybe that's better for you too, just like the sugar. I don't know, but I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about getting down, dropping below 170. I'm about 183 now, and that's light for me. Below 170 is like fighting weight. But why not as an experiment you know and I like to eat so gaining it's going to be super easy you know I love I love eating so that's that's easy. I was thinking of dropping below 170. I still wouldn't have like that I mean who knows 165 would be pretty extreme for me but we'll see just an idea and, uh, and it's easy if you're fasting a lot running a lot and you just mostly like to eat meat and I mean I like ice cream a lot too but I could you know for a couple of weeks just get out of it. Couple of months, not eat much of it. Um, not booze as much. It's not too hard. Anyway, just a thought. Could be totally wrong. Somebody might know why this is a, f- a totally flawed, but that's the kind of thing. I just want to put it out there. Like, I don't really I could do more research. I know that there are toxins, fat-soluble toxins stored in fat, but I don't really want to write an essay on this necessarily. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll I'll be moved to. All right. A couple other things. On Twitter, I was just noting that. One of the biggest temptations for me, and obviously if you listen to this podcast, you know this, is to, and I'm quoting from the Bad Brains, who I'm sure we're quoting from the Bible. It sounds like a Bible verse, but uh, they said, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, nor taketh the light in the way that the unrighteous go. And it's a great song, The Meek Shall Inherit the Earth by Bad Brains. You can check it out. But I love that line, nor take it the light in the way that the unrighteous go. i that is my one of my strongest temptations is to take it the light in the way that the unrighteous go. All these phonies who were trying to mandate the vax and then they're worried about what's going on in China, and you know they're they're all about my body, my choice suddenly, but they didn't care about forcing people to take a vaccine. It's very tempting for me to take it the light in the way the unrighteous go. I just feel very strongly about hypocrisy and justice and fairness and Righteousness and if, if somebody's like unrighteous, especially if they came at you, I want justice. I mean, in one way it's good, it's a motivator, right? You you should always be speaking out what you think is true, even if it, people might get mad at you. It, it's it's really important not to say true, like, oh, you're fat, but to speak out about what's important and true, and especially when unjust things are going on, especially when it's unpopular, because that's when it's needed, right? It's no big deal to speak out about the thing that everybody's speaking out about. You're not really needed. But if you're speaking out about something that people are silent about, then, then it's important. But the question I asked was, you know, can you do it without being provoked to disgust and rage? Because that feeling of rage and disgust uh, is, is not good for you. And they're motivators, but they suck in your energy. And it's just a drain of psychological resources when you're just caught up in like, God, that guy's such a phony fuck. What a sophist, what a gaslighting piece of shit that guy is. I mean, so I, I can feel it, like I, I don't know, a little fucking lying sack of shit. What a hypocrite. But I almost feel like some of these guys, and I, I know, I've known some of them, and just some of them on Twitter, and some of the people in the legacy media, and even some of the publications, even the government, it's like they exist to drive you crazy. It's like they're the only post, their post is so ridiculously full of shit. It's so absurd. It's such a gaslight of everything that's going on. And you feel like the only reason this guy's posting this is to get people like me to be like fucking in a rage and squander our peace of mind and emotional energy on being just disgusted by them. And I know that, and yet it's still a temptation. It works on me. You know, that. that it still operates on me. But I know this for a fact. If you want to win against the worst offenders, the worst gaslighters, you got to ignore them. And I don't mean like, Again, I still speak out about the truth about whatever it is that they're bullshitting. Don't reference them, but obviously the, the truth matters. But just forget about the personal aspect of it. Forget about who's gaslighting, who's full of shit. doesn't matter. Don't engage with them. And not just don't engage with them, but literally delete their existence from your awareness and consciousness. Like the gateway of your consciousness is, and I'm going to talk about people's brains getting hacked, is very important to guard. The things that get into your consciousness are like the things that you eat, that you ingest in your physical body the the images and words and sounds that you ingest into your consciousness are important and they affect you and some of these people are so toxic that even though your your actual reaction it was what you would do with somebody who you wasn't that crazy wasn't that toxic did have a shred of integrity you'd be like no dude you're wrong that's bullshit and you would want to argue with them and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, you're right, I was wrong about that, or I mistreated you, or I, I, I mistreated people, that wasn't right, I can see now. You, you think you're talking to somebody with integrity who gives a shit, but you're not. You're talking, about, you're talking to somebody who does not give a fuck about what they said. They were only doing it to signal and belong and infuriate people, and it, there's no getting it. So not only do you not engage with them, Don't engage with them unless they come after you and and you can use them as sort of an example to onlookers. But even better, don't engage with them and don't even let them get to the gateway of your awareness. Don't even let them get to the point where they're even in your consciousness. And I have this exercise I do. I might've mentioned this before, but I I like this. So, you know, on your computer, if you have a Mac or I think even a PC, it's the same thing. Haven't had one in a while. But, you know, you move an icon or a file into the trash, you drag it. And it makes a little sound in the trash. And then you array, then you empty the trash and it goes. And I'll literally take an image of a publication or, or some personality. That's just so fucking full of shit. And I'll just move them to the trash and poof empty. And it's just a message to my mind. Like, don't let them get in there. You know, just, they don't exist. They're just there to troll you. They're not, it's not a serious debate. They're not making a logical point. They're not making an argument. They're not, they're not contributing to the marketplace of ideas, which is, you know, this whole Twitter thing, right? I mean, it's like they want to destroy the marketplace of ideas because they can't win. They can't even survive. I saw this interesting interview with this guy, Darren Beatty where he says that Twitter is an existential threat to the regime because it cannot exist. The lies that it perpetrates, the lies upon which it's based cannot exist where there's a free, marketplace of ideas where there's a free public square. So this is not a small thing. I mean I'd be concerned if I were Elon Musk for my security because I mean this is the stakes are big. If information is allowed to be free this is this is dangerous for a regime that's based on lies. So I'm very curious what's going to happen you know the whole idea of Apple threatening to deplatform Twitter from its app store which already Elon Musk is going on the offense and saying I'll build a new phone and I thought Apple was for free speech and he added Tim Cook and telling people sign up for Twitter with your phone browser. Don't sign up through Apple who gets 30%. And he's mentioning that Apple takes 30%. And that's true. You know, roto a lot of customers would say, why don't you give free app access? Why don't you let us have, you know, when, we, when we're subscribers, these two-year subscribers at the maximum subscription say, why don't I have also free access to the app? We're like, we can't. That's through Apple's ecosystem and they pull out 30%. We can't we can't do it. We don't, we can't, you know, the subscriptions to the site were through our system. So that's how much power Apple has. And even just considering it, even stopping advertising, even tweaking Elon Musk, all of a sudden this 30% thing and the the need for monopoly regulation, where, you know, everybody has to be on Apple store and pay this 30% rake, this, uh, this monopoly tax is now in the public awareness. So, um, it's high stakes, but but I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I think uh, Elon Musk, and I told you, I'm very wary of him. I wrote a whole, a whole post saying the Antichrist, he's the most likely, but I'm rooting for him now. I mean, if it turns out that's correct, you know, when he has so much power, he liberates this, then that could be dangerous. He's, you know, he's also into this sort of Neuralink. That's a whole other thing. I have a thread on that too in my Twitter feed that I retweeted that was very disturbing. But first things first, these people that, you just have to ignore them. And it's funny, this, uh, this guy, Walter Kern, uh, made a great tweet and he said, Twitter pulled the canned applause track and a number of well-known figures here who can't hold a real audience are fleeing. They're pretending it's out of principle. And you know, those laugh tracks in the old comedies, that's what would happen, right? Like somebody from CNN would tweet something and they'd get a thousand bots to like it and comment on it. And now that that's getting to some extent removed, and they may have a tweet and nobody cares for it. Even though they have a million followers, they're pretending, oh, Twitter's terrible. I got to leave. But nobody can really point anything out. I mean, they're, they're saying things like, oh, Twitter is hate speech. and But there's no greater or less hate speech. I think they removed a lot of child pornography. I'll tell you something funny. I set up a, a Twitter account for my dog, Oscar, at the Skeesley. Because uh, the at Oscar list was taken. So at the Skeesley, that's his nickname, the Skeesley. And I tried to change his date of birth from 2000 to 2020, which is real date of birth, real year of birth. And they thought it was a underage person and they, they locked the account. So I had to email them and I was like, dude, this is my fucking dog's account. Chill. And I haven't heard back. So that's, that's annoying. But apparently they got rid of child pornography on Twitter. So and if anything, Twitter is causing less harm than it was, but all of the pearl clutchers, but again, I, I shouldn't even get into this pearl clutchers, whatever. They aren't seriously making an argument. It's just gaslighting. It's just tribal allegiance. There's no, there's no argument. There's no argument at all. It's just simply, and you know what? Delete, delete. They just don't want information to be free because it's an existential threat. If you're living a lie, the truth is an existential threat, which is related to uh threat I just wrote Uh, about people's brains being hacked. Imagine if you, and I I know I'm preaching to the choir here, so not too many listeners are going to, it's not going to apply to you. But imagine if you were shilling for the Pfizer, like you were saying, get boosted, get faxed. And you were scolding people who didn't agree with that or didn't want that medicine or didn't think it was necessary and getting super angry at them and emailing relatives. They were bad. And that's why you caught COVID and you got your family sick and all these things that I heard when I got sick. And you're shilling for pfizer and so you really believe in that you really believe the vax it's really important to take that and then when the COVID started and people said you know there's a lab doing gain of function research on coronaviruses right there and the coronavirus started in that town and like that's a conspiracy theory it's obviously zoonotic and it came through this and a pangolin and that and and someone says, well, no, I think it's most likely from the place doing the research right there. I mean, that seems to make the most sense. Like that's a conspiracy theory. You're a crazy person, blah, blah, blah. So you, you were doing that and you were shilling for Pfizer and whatever it is that comes up and all of a sudden Ukraine is extremely important. We have to give them money. And you're saying all this stuff and consider like you believe everything that the most powerful corporate factions want you to believe. You believe what the administration wants you to believe. You believe what your peers want you to believe, what your boss and employer wants you to believe. I mean, consider you may have been hacked. Your brain may have been hacked. You let something get into the gateway of your awareness. And just like a computer virus that you downloaded, that information got into your brain and it wired it differently. And now you Um, are saying every single thing you're supposed to say and thinking every single thing you're supposed to think with barely any dissent. In fact, the dissent you have is for stupid stuff. You have people arguing whether a hot dog is a sandwich. You know, they argue if pineapple is good on pizza. They think that's hilarious. Why? Why are they doing that? Because they can't dissent from anything meaningful. They have to create these fake, stupid things to get riled up about as a joke because they don't really have any disagreement. They don't disagree about anything. And I think if you don't disagree about anything that the most powerful faction society believe you've probably been hacked, you've been hacked. Now, of course I'm preaching the choir because if you've been hacked, this podcast is a conspiracy theory. So you probably already rejected it. So it doesn't really matter, but I just think they've, they've been hacked. I mean, there's a reason zombie movies resonate with people. Zombies, right? What's a zombie movie? A zombie movies, these undead. They're like, have a program and the zombie does what it's programmed to do. It's dead, but it's alive via some supernatural demonic algorithm that it just does this thing. If you watch The Walking Dead, the zombies have behavioral patterns and rules and they just do that. They're zombies. And I think that zombies were a big thing in the last five, 10 years, because I think somewhere in our consciousness, we understand that people have been zombified. They believe everything. I talk to people and I'll point out things that they said and, and I'll say, you know, but that's not true. Like the people who were vaccinated did catch it and they did spread it. And it wasn't a winner of death for the unvaccinated and they're just unable to take it in. You could say, can you believe what you purport to believe when right in front of your face you can see that it's not true and they'll just want to move on or dismiss it or change the subject somehow the algorithm by which they're being controlled is so strong that even if they see evidence with their own eyes and their eyes work fine their ears work fine they don't incorporate it into their worldview they're no longer taking in new information that might alter their worldview because That's what a zombie is. They have a program. It doesn't matter what's around them. The program is what governs their behavior. And you'll hear them say things 10 minutes later after you've had this conversation about obviously that the vaccinated catch and spread it in some cases more than the unvaccinated these days. And they will just say things like, oh, I went to this wedding and a bunch of people got COVID, but luckily I'm vaccinated and I didn't catch it. They'll say things like that. And you will be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But to them, there's no contradiction. It doesn't matter. It's just the the algorithm is stronger than the faculty of incorporating new and contradictory evidence into their worldviews, and that's what I kind of mean about. There's a lot of people whose brains have been hacked. A lot of zombies walking around out there. The other thing I was talking about something like oh I was talking about that you know the substackers that I followed have been so much more accurate about COVID than the legacy media and the corporate media and the establishment line. And one father asked, like, how do I know who is more accurate? Both sides are dunking and claiming victory. And I said, well, did the vaccine prevent people from catching COVID and spreading it? And he was acting like, well, we just don't know. And it was a sort of relativistic, well, who knows what's true? Some people think this is true. Some people think that is true. But I said, there's such things as facts. Like, there are facts. They said to you that if you take this vaccine, you won't get the virus and you won't spread the virus and that you're saving lives by taking the vaccine. And that was a lie. And the substacks were saying, no, this vaccine is not sterilizing. I think what it is, I think what the actual reason why people are like that is that many people take their version of reality and what to believe based on what other people believe, their peers. And so if you if you look to your peers to, To guide you, then if some of your peers think this and some of your peers think that, then it's going to seem very arbitrary, the truth, right? Some people think this, some people think that. But if you think about what's true from your observations, from first principles, from what you can ascertain for yourself, then you're not going to just see everything as well, you never know. Some facts are settled. It is a settled fact that the vaccinated can catch and spread the virus, it's a settled fact. That people like me who are not vaccinated did not die. It's a settled fact that there's myriad side effects from the vaccine, some acknowledged and some unacknowledged. But the data is coming out every day, and there's young people dying of heart attacks and huge increase in cancers, autoimmune disease, and across the board. I mean, there's just this stuff is coming out like it's not just somebody's opinion. And I think it's very dangerous to go down that road where you're like, well, I don't know if that's true. It's, It's just somebody's opinion. But I think if your whole orientation is based on what other people think, as long as enough people who you think are smart or in powerful positions think something, you're gonna have a really hard time acknowledging that that's just false. People like other smart people think this, what makes you right? It's not because I'm smarter than them, it's because these things are facts. If you know people who are vaccinated, who caught and spread COVID, yes, of course you do. That's just a fact. You know, if you thought at the time that it was urgent to get vaccinated to stop the spread, you were wrong. That's just a fact. It's not an opinion. It's just a fact. It's an observable fact in your life. So, you know, th- this is not, this is a, there's the first principles where you can think, well, okay, what's most likely to be true? How do things work in the world? And there's observations, you know, my eyes and ears, like, what am I observing? And every one of us knows vaccinated people who caught COVID and, Presumably spread COVID. We know it. We see it. Their whole family got it. They're all vaccinated. They're all together. They got it and spread it. That's just how it is. It's just a fact. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what people thought. But it, that guy was still like, "Oh, how, how do you know the substackers are right?" Because for him, it doesn't matter what the facts are, as long as there's people who are smart or powerful or important or in his social, in his social and professional circles, in his interest to agree with then it's unclear because his mind was like, well, I don't know. Who knows? I don't want to resolve this. I don't want to know that that's a fact that they were totally wrong because it's going to make things weird. Anyway, that's just uh, more of what's been going on. But I think that's basically it. I feel like a lot of shit's going down. I am more bullish on Bitcoin than ever, oddly. I feel like I mentioned this a couple podcasts ago, but once we get rid of this fake paper Bitcoin and people are removing their actual Bitcoin, the scarce commodity that it is, from the exchanges, then the new demand for it will be met with scarce supply, and it's going to drive the price up. And this FTX thing is actually going to be very good for Bitcoin short term. Do I know that it won't go down? No, I don't. But I'm feeling very bullish. And you know, again, it's like, how do I know? Is that true? Is that false? Well, it's just first principles. You know, that, that every time I get doubts and I have doubts like everybody else, I think, okay what is this thing? What is the point of it? How does it work? What is its function? What is the function of the current mo- money that we use, the fiat system? How is it audited? How does it increase supply? How does it gain trust or lose trust? There's a great point by the um, guys I followed Jujiji. He said, Bitcoin's not volatile, human psychology is. So humans will trust and distrust it you know, in, in these erratic spurts. And that will cause the price relative to the measuring stick, which is currently fiat currency, dollars, euros, whatever, usually dollars, to fluctuate greatly. But Bitcoin is not fluctuating. It puts out a new block every 10 minutes. It works. It's not, it's incredibly stable. It's not volatile at all. But people psychologically are like, oh, I think it's going to zero. I don't know. I don't trust it. Maybe there's too much paper Bitcoin and drives the price down. So think about that. It's doing its thing. The volatility is just in the psychology, but what makes humans trust? What makes volatile, emotional, distrustful humans trust? Consistency, reliability. And so as it's now 13 years old, it gets to be 14 years old and all these shit coins are getting wrecked and this thing's still trading. It's 16,900 as I'm recording this. If it goes to 17 or 20 again, people are like, wow, this thing just doesn't die. This thing goes back up every time. And so far it has. And so you start to get the sense that like, the more resilience it has, the more people are going to be like, this thing is trustworthy. And then their volatility with respect to it is going to go away eventually. You know, that's the same thing with people, right? You may be mistrustful of people, but if somebody is a rock, if they're there every single time, then, you know, then you trust them. And I think that's, uh, I think we're in an interesting place. I I think people should buy some, you know, something they can afford to lose, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever your, your threshold is, Watch it and then learn once you own some, but don't buy like two whole Bitcoins and not know and not learn. And then the second there's a panic, you end up selling at a loss. That's the worst thing you can do because you need conviction, right? It's not enough. People say, oh, you're so lucky. You know, those people who had it at a dollar and you know, now it's 19,000 thousand. They're, they're billionaires. They say, you're so lucky. Oh really? If you got it at a dollar and went up to 500, you wouldn't have sold it when it got to a dollar, then it went up to $30, then back to $8, you wouldn't have sold on the way down just to get some money out. I mean, how many times it's done this? You know, it's not luck. Most people, if they got it, got it in a dollar would not have any. Now they would have got rid of it. So you need to have the conviction to hold it through the, through the human volatility. That's not over yet. And so you shouldn't buy it if you're going to panic sell and you shouldn't buy it with something that you need for the rent you should buy an amount that you can put away and not worry and take to cold storage and figure out what that means as the ftx debacle showed and do the learning i mean you know it's it's not that easy but it's not that hard when they when the car was invented apparently i read this that they didn't have a steering wheel they had reins like a horse reins to steer the car because people that's how people were used to steering so bitcoin gets Made available to the masses via these exchanges that look like a You know, you buy some, you trade it, um, but that's not what it is. It's a bearer instrument. It's your own keys. You own it. You don't need a third party to to regulate it for you. It's your own. And so, of course, just like the reins for the steering wheel, people are onboarding themselves in a from an exchange, but the exchange is not trustworthy. They don't. They hold your keys, and they may even outsource their keys to another third party. And so they're just owing you an I, you only bought an IOU from them. You don't actually own the asset itself. And so, you know, it takes a little learning to self-custody and to back up your seed and not to lose it, not to screw it up. It's not rocket science. You know, there's a lot of people who have custody of their Bitcoin that aren't geniuses. I learned to fucking drive a stick shift in a foreign country at age 51. And that was a bit stressful, right? I mean, high stakes, you're in a car with your family, you're driving fast, you're on the highway, you're... Changing lanes. I mean, obviously I knew to drive already, but you have to shift down to get off the exits and stall in the middle of a busy road or whatever. I mean, it's a little bit scary. I learned that. I can learn to drive stick shift at age 51. You can learn to self-custody your coins. But again, I'm I'm very bullish. I feel good about it, but I also feel like I probably should have said this before when I was talking about it, that you shouldn't own a substantial amount until you get it, have some level of conviction because you're just gonna have soft hands and you're gonna you're gonna sell it, and then when it when it moves, you're gonna be suicidal that you had two bitcoins and they're worth five million dollars each, and you sold it at you know seventeen thousand. Buy a hundred or five hundred or whatever you can afford. Learn to self-custody it. Play around with it when it's still low stakes, and then once you get it, if you get it, if you agree, then you can go in bigger. But I think that's important to start small. So uh, until you build up the conviction and understand it. All right, this one went on pretty long. That's going to do it. Till next time.